It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. Some breaking news to share with you this morning. M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. The allegation here, I think, there is that there's a broader culture of sexual harassment, sexual misconduct at CVS that not only was perpetrated allegedly by Les Moonves, but it was permitted. Hello and welcome to According to Sources for the week of July 29th, 2018. That was the voice of Melissa Lee on CNBC. She was discussing the Friday scandal that rocked CBS and their CEO, Les Moonves. To me, it's very clear the next steps that are about to happen at CBS. Number one, Les Moonves will no longer be with this company, in my opinion, in a month or less. No one is yet to survive the Me Too movement, and you can look at the CEO of Guess, you can look at Steve Wynn, you can look at even another member of the family of CBS, Charlie Rose, who got fired for, I would say, similar style, similar sounding allegations that Les Moonves is currently being accused of. So Les Moonves will be gone. And of course, as we know, he was the major impediment to the merger between Viacom and CBS. And perhaps the Redstone family was just given a gift as they now will get no pushback for firing someone that's essentially well-regarded as being the best operator in the television industry. But he's also been the impediment to this deal, which now could be gone. So here's why I think CBS is actually a 47 to $48 stock, and it's currently at 54. And again, I am short the shares. Number one, CBS shares have gone from 50 to as high as 57 since the Time Warner ruling came out. And I believe that's because people are of the impression that it's possible that a bidder could in fact come in for CBS. Now that Moonves is gone, and he was the person that was championing the idea of selling CBS independently, now that Moonves is gone, the idea that a Viacom and CBS merger will suddenly come back full force. So I believe those $7 alone from the Time Warner ruling should be retracted. So then where do you go from there? It's been well regarded and well known that Les Moonves is the best operator in TV. Had he simply retired, I think that would be worth 5% at a minimum to CBS shares. So that's two pieces of bad news. And number three, now CBS is perhaps going to be forced to swallow an asset that they simply just don't want to. As a reminder, this is an asset that Bernstein analysts have said could be worth single digits in the event that CBS does not buy them. And lastly, in terms of an arbitrage spread, remember, CBS is the buyer. This is going to be an all-stock transaction, and therefore people are going to be buying Viacom and shorting CBS, so there will be arb pressure on the name. So for those four reasons, I truly believe this is one of the most high-conviction short ideas I have had this year, and with a stock at 54, I think it's at least 10% overpriced. This week on According to Sources, I sat down with Jason Varano. He is the executive director at Nomura Securities, where he focuses on special situations and risk arbitrage. In this comprehensive interview, we focus on NXPI and Qualcomm. We hit upon Altaba and Alibaba, Acorn, AKRX, and we even briefly discussed CBS and Viacom. Bear in mind, this interview was recorded on Thursday, July 26th, the day before the Moonves headlines came out. However, we do get slightly in-depth into CBS and Viacom. Enjoy the interview. I think there's no better place to start today than NXPI Qualcomm. And this is a name that obviously has been on every event desk book 
or they've been looking at it 19 months. And if they weren't looking at NXP, they were looking at Broadcom, Qualcomm. So maybe now this is finally the gift that can stop giving. Going into today, talking to customers and talking to people that you trade with, what was the sentiment that you were getting? Yeah, I mean, look, this deal has been going on for almost two years now. Uh, there's definitely been various periods of fatigue. But I think at the end, what people were kind of hanging their hat on was, I guess, that logic would prevail here. Um, I think people viewed whatever, however China wants to spin this, uh, it's the reason the deal broke is because China wouldn't give approval and it, it shouldn't be a real regulatory concern at all in China. So it was a political block from China. Uh, and I think that given the context of where we are in these trade war dynamics and China's seeming uh, desire to take the high road, that China would ultimately let this through. Um, and there was definitely that quid pro quo with ZTE that people were really thinking existed. And you had the ZTE conference uh, bill that came out right around the same time that this deal was kind of facing its drop dead date. So I think people were thinking that that wasn't a coincidence either. Now, did you have guys that um, were long only guys or guys that were obviously betting on this deal happening? And then when the writing was on the wall that maybe it wasn't quid pro quo and maybe ZTE, it wasn't a ZTE for NXPI, did they ever flip and just be like, maybe I'll just go short? Or do you think people could just get married to their own ideas? Yeah, I mean, look, the I don't think anyone was really short this thing in any kind of size throughout the whole process. Uh, one, I mean, basically by not being involved, you were almost short just from a, because everyone else was involved right. in this thing and you're underperforming if it closed. Uh, but I mean, the short interest never really ticked up at all throughout the course of this thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, people like NXPI fundamentally. That's why they got the bump. People felt good about owning it in the low hundreds when it got there. And then, yeah, this whole China dynamic, I think people just didn't foresee playing out this way. So where do you think these two companies go from here? So one thing I think we learned was that maybe Qualcomm was win-win either way. Yeah, no, I mean, there was for a while, Qualcomm was actually a short against NXPI long. Uh, just because people were thinking that if Qualcomm couldn't diversify their revenue stream, then they were in trouble and any kind of buyback would just be temporary in nature. And that, that narrative has completely flipped. Um, look, you're facing a company that's buying back over a third of their float, and they said that they're going to do it by the end of calendar year 19. That's pretty fast. Um, yeah, I think now people are sort of turning towards this Apple licensing deal and thinking that there's, we're going to have some resolution on that. So go, wait, going back though to the to the Qualcomm buyback, which I kind of dismissed a little bit, and then because um, at the end of the day, I thought that you know financial engineering to boost your EPS at the end of the day is not as good as organically growing it through a business. Yeah. But when you really dig in and you see the amount of stock that Qualcomm needs to buy now, it's it's pretty nuts, and they have to buy a third of the company, uh, which is about five hundred million shares. And either they can, I, I think I saw a stat that said they'd have to be 100% of the volume for like uh, 60 days or they'll do a Dutch. So now I'm wondering is Qualcomm, which is again, has been on, on every event desk for 19 months, is the next event that they do a Dutch? Yeah, I mean, look, when 
they were trying to defend themselves from Broadcom. They came up with some numbers that inferred that they were somewhat optimistic on this Apple agreement. Uh, and if you're Qualcomm and you think that this Apple agreement's going to happen, why are you going to wait to buy back stock? Because it's just going to be higher than it is right now. So accelerating your repurchase, I think, would make sense. So that Dutch theory is definitely out there. We've heard it. And look, if they do a big Dutch, stock's not going to go down. Right. I kind of feel like with Qualcomm, it's like trading with a net now for the next six months because you know that they're going to be there. Every time the stock goes down, they're going to be there. Um, I was thinking maybe you just sell puts in this thing over and over and over again and that, you know, you just keep bringing in that premium for the next year. Yeah. And the vol came off a ton today. Um, so, you know, risk reversal, sell put by call, all those trades line up pretty well. So that's Qualcomm. What do you think is going to happen with NXPI? Is this just like a sleepy semi now? Maybe. I mean, look, NXPI always traded at a discount to the rest of the names historically. Um, they haven't, they've had periods where they haven't been the best operators. Um, and they had six great quarters in a row, got a bump, and then had a pretty terrible quarter. So I think there was a lot of nervousness around what this print was going to look like. Uh, and now that the print's out of the way and it looked decent, the guidance looked decent, they have some pretty quick bounce back on margins. Uh, they're really talking up auto rev growth in the out years. You know, I don't think the street's taking their numbers down. Most of the street's right around $8, and that probably doesn't include this full buyback. I don't know. I don't know. Like you said, NXPI is always traded at a discount, so I wonder, um, is there a reason why that should stop? And the people that were buying it today were, were telling me that well, they, they compare it to Infineon in Germany, and they're like, well, Infineon's gone up 50% since they signed that deal 19 months ago. Uh, NXPI should be you know, 110 anyway. Yeah, the, the percent moves are a little disingenuous, I think, because a lot of that's been driven by EPS. Actually, semi-multiples have gone down since right. they at first announced this deal. Um, and NXPI's numbers are actually down as well. But they did a dilutive divestiture. Um, they haven't been buying back stock. All the other semi-names have been. Um, and, you know, at this point, they're like almost half of their revs are coming from automotive. Right. Uh, and, you know, I think, I think that's going to be a place that people want to be in the semi land. I think historically it's sort of traded in the 13 to 15 times PE range and the streets, $8. I mean, it seems like that bull thesis that people have, you know, should play out and, you know, it's not quite as big as Qualcomm, but these guys are buying back a slug of stock also. And on the call today, they guided to even potentially even more capital returns to be announced at the investor day. Um, so maybe these guys are looking at a tender, or maybe they're going to uh, put out a div, or maybe they're going to increase, <clears throat> really buy back shares as fast as they can here, and then just announce you know, an increase to their buyback. The one thing that I noticed on the call today was the excuse that people were making for NXPI for missing was that people thought they just weren't maybe in the game as much as they could have been. And but yet, on the call, executives made it seem like they were fairly engaged the entire way. Did you, fi- did you find that as well? Yeah, um, they did make some comments that uh, the employee, he sort of thanked the employees and said, I know it's been distracting and we really have to refocus. Um, and he sort of said that the quarter didn't come in as well as he thought it was going to. So he, he did kind of allude to that. But yeah, I think I thought the call went reasonably well. It, they've actually been investing. If you look at their um, 
what they've been spending on product development. It's not like it fell off a cliff. It doesn't seem like they've been artificially inflating numbers or inventories. They said were just right in line with what their their target is. So maybe that's been a little bit overstated, but that might be something that we have to sort of see flesh out over the next couple quarters. Right. So um, I guess the next thing is, what does this all mean for the rest of M&A and, and the rest of your space? And the thing that people will obviously think now is, is this an XPI one-off? Is this just one deal that China had one problem with? Or is this China's way of saying, of fighting back against tariffs and trades? And is this going to put a halt to a lot of tech M&A around the world? Is this going to put a stop to cross-border deals? And you're seeing even Fox A and Disney spread blow out a little bit. So what do you think... And I guess, what are you hearing from investors in terms of how is this going to affect the rest of M&A and the rest of the event? Look, it's it's hard to say. Um, you know, clearly, if you're uh, considering doing a large acquisition and you need China approval, uh, you're probably going to be thinking twice about it. Um, but they, I mean, China has been approving other deals uh, this whole time. Yeah, yeah the Marvel Cavium deal got approved. Right. So. They're saying that, you know, the combination of this deal has a lot of impacts on China and the, the semiconductor industry there specifically that they were having to take a long time to look at. Right. Um, so it feels like this was more just a warning shot or shot across the bow to the U.S. Um, look, maybe that is part of the reason Disney Fox A is blowing out. Fox A is I think less than 1% of the revenues were generated in China, so I don't think ultimately that will be a, a real issue on this deal. But look, maybe it impacts timing, and we know that the administration seemingly has been just letting that deal skate right through. So maybe China sees another opportunity to exert its influence and kind of try to get the U.S. to back off what they're doing and right. kind of the other side of the trade war stuff. You know, um, speaking of the administration, I was looking at, I wasn't sure, uh, did you have people involved in Tribune Sinclair? Uh, yeah, yeah. And so the sense that I got before that deal was sort of squashed was that this is going to have no problem getting through. And it's, this is, we have a Republican administration and these are the fruits that come with that. And then, bam. Well, you saw today there was the DOJ's investigating uh, potential it seems like uh, potential antitrust in the ad, right. the ad space uh, that was uncovered during the um, their investigation of this this situation. Yeah, I mean that that's a, a tough one because obviously the the president like this is a company that's very supportive of the current administration. Uh, and when Pi came in, one of the first things he did was get rid of was basically change the law to allow this deal to go through. So. Uh, it just seems like total 180. Uh, but I don't know, maybe after the whole um, Time Warner T thing and, you know, the government just coming out of nowhere to challenge a deal and then just getting crushed in court and then just letting the Disney deal <laughs> skate right through. Maybe this was sort of the sacrificial lamb to make it seem like it wasn't all politics driving our regulatory reviews. I, I don't know. It's and, funny that we paid so much attention to a tr uh, you know a tweet from Trump in the beginning yeah and clearly for example in Time Warner it was meaningless and then Trump was really supportive of the Sinclair deal with Tribune and it was meaningless and 
you get the sense because he has this relationship with you know, Maya Yoshi's son and SoftBank that maybe he's pro Sprint T-Mobile. I don't think it matters. It doesn't matter. Right. What about all those jobs that he was going to bring in? Yeah. But I don't yeah. think it matters. Yeah. I mean, look, there's definitely people that, that do still think that it matters. The stocks move off of it. It's just now maybe you have to look at it as um, opportunity, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a tricky one. That deal's a tricky tricky situation so i wanted just to get to uh let's get to a couple of individual names so yeah um what's the number one thing and the number one event that people want to talk to you about right now yeah i mean it's just been so thoroughly dominated by time warner and nxpi for the last six months um look i mean there's a lot of people in this fox deal um obviously the healthcare deals have a lot of interest um i think that you know if guys are you know, unwinding NXPI today, or if I'm trying to think about where some of that money goes to, uh, we do have this Altaba uh, partial tender coming up. Yeah, explain the, try, try to break down, uh, I guess in a simple way, how to play this Altaba tender and, and what's at stake and what the risks are. Yeah, so look, this is a pretty complicated situation yeah. as well, so. Right, and just to backtrack, so Altaba, obviously uh, Alibaba tracking stock, they're unwinding a chunk of their Baba and they're doing it in which form Bob is buying it directly from them or they're selling it um, for they're selling yes. Baba shares in the open market. Well, a little bit of a combination of both. They're doing this uh, exchange where you every shareholder of Altaba can basically have the opportunity to turn in their shares of Altaba and receive back shares of Baba okay. um, and some cash. How are people putting this on? I mean, look, there's this whole contingent of people that just like Alibaba and think that Altaba is a cheaper way to play it. So that's definitely one way for people to try to take advantage of this discount. Uh, But the ARB community is generally uh, short Alibaba, long Altaba, and just playing for this compression to happen. And how much is in that right now? Uh, I think it went out something like five dollars to the fully taxed amount and then after they do this tender since they get some accretion they're buying it back for for cheaper than the net asset value it's something like six dollars right and is there a date on this it will probably take about a year to play out um, after they do this tender so basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to minimize their tax bill Mm -hmm. for obvious reasons Uh, in order to do that they're sort of going to be testing some uh, tax ideas that are sort of used in other other circumstances that they're trying to apply here and see if they can use some of these uh, you know, tax laws to their advantage to be able to reduce their, their tax bill. So that type of thing takes a while. You have to go, you have to file taxes. The IRS is probably going to look at it. Um, so that process can, can take a little while. There's also some China tax they might have to pay. So if you're... Um if you're a, a short-term trader, a short-term event guy, mm-hmm. and you want to play this, yeah, how do you do it? Yeah, so if, for the short term, there's this partial tender that's happening in, uh, in the beginning of August. So if you buy Altaba, sell Alibaba right now, there's something like $1.50 of upside in Altaba to, the pri- to basically the exchange that they're going right. to give you. So if you buy... So what is that, like 2% or something? Uh, yeah, so it's 2%, but it's over two weeks. So that's you're talking like pretty solid IRR, especially compared to how tight 
normal arb spreads right. are trading. So your risk is that a lot of people participate and you don't get to unwind your full position. Right. So what sort of pro rate are people banking on right now? It's a little bit tough to say just because of the what makes up the holder base in this name. So in a normal name, you kind of know that, okay, the indexers aren't going to tender. The vanilla funds that have owned this thing for 10 years, they're not going to tender. Uh, but in this one, it's you know, almost by definition, like a passive guy can't be in this thing. Like sure. they just can't own it. So, yeah. So it's a little bit hard to say. I mean, maybe everyone tenders or maybe people think that they want to hold on for one year from now when they can get an additional five or six percent of upside. So and we've definitely seen like TCI own 10 percent of this thing. And it's just from their filings. It looks like they're unwinding it, if not yeah. their entire, I mean, at least half their position. So yeah, they're probably going to tender some, and um, so you can get there are ways that you can get a feel for how much arbs are coming into this thing, but the existing holders is a little bit it's a little bit more difficult um, to gauge. Anyways, I mean it's, it feels like you know anything below you know fifty percent would seem fairly unlikely. Dell VMware, you got a resolution, and no one seems to be that happy about it. Yeah, you kind of got a resolution. We'll see. We still have a shareholder vote to get through. So this is a tough situation. So Dell went and bought EMC, mm -hmm. and he didn't want to lever up more than he already was. So And he didn't want to pay taxes by selling EMC's VMware shares. So he kind of came up with this tracking stock uh, structure, basically to allow him to do the deal. If you look at the fairness opinions from the bankers, they thought this thing would trade at a 5% discount. Five to ten percent discount. Uh, on the call, Joe Tucci at EMC was saying this is going to be the greatest tracker tracking stock in the history of tracking stocks. They were highlighting that it's more going to be more liquid than VMware and Dell. Personally, uh, can you know took ownership of a big chunk of this tracking stock. Michael Dell himself. Yeah, well, Michael through through you know DHI, which right. is which he owns a majority of. Um, so then. <laughs> over the course of the next year and a half, he used VMware's cash effectively to um, buy more, you know, increase his size of the tracking stock um, and effectively try to, you know, monetize the, the discount that spread was trading for. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, all of a sudden they announced these strategic alternatives. It blows out to the wides. It got as much as a 50% discount to VMware. Right. Um, and then he announces he's exchanging the shares over at not only a significant discount to VMware uh, current price into what everyone has as VMware fair value, uh, but he's also going to give people these DHI, DHI shares, um, which people have worth, or presumably, um, just given where the market's trading, even less than the cash that he's giving you. So that seems to be the huge disconnect is in this value of new Dell and what people think it's worth. Yeah. So. Look, it, at the end of the day, it's just a piece of paper. Sure, they're actual shares instead of tracking shares, but Dell still has a majority ownership. Yeah. Uh, VMware shares are real shares. And look what VMware was doing when people thought that Dell was going to sort of force a squeeze out there. Right. So, you know, at the end of the day, like you have to, you are taking a little bit of a leap of faith with Dell. And he doesn't have the greatest track record at this point. Like he took his own shares private at what people think was a pretty massive discount. Um, he's you know, exchanging over these D, uh, these uh, DBMT shares that what people think are is a pretty big discount. So 
kind of walk me through what happens on a desk like yours that day that that spread went insane. Yeah, I just hope I don't get tapped on the shoulder to and escorted out of the building. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the first thing that we're trying to do is just interpret the information that that particular situation was one that we were extremely familiar with. Right. And then that caught people to say flat footed is an understatement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, when the news first came out, we were thinking that it was potentially bullish because we thought that it would potentially lead to a convergence event, uh, meaning something would be done to, to basically uh, convert your DVMT shares into VMware shares. Right. And just for some background, the, you know, the, the event guys were playing for uh, DVMT to be bought out, essentially. And suddenly this Wall Street Journal article comes out and it says something quite different. Yeah. So I think people were playing for not necessarily DVMT to be bought out. I think some sort of convergence event where he just he merged VMware, DVMT and Dell together into right. one entity and DVMT shareholders got some amount of shares of this entity that was somewhat similar to the shares that a VMware holder got. So if you were short VMware long DVMT, you you basically flatten out your position uh, at a much tighter level than it was trading right now. Uh, But when the Wall Street Journal article first hit, it said that he was, it was just looking at buying VMware. So everyone was long DVMT and short VMware. And if VMware gets bought, then all of a sudden you have a tracking stock that tracks something that doesn't really like, yeah, it doesn't really exist in terms of like having some sort of public valuation. Um, so I think what the fear was, was that VMware was going to take, get taken out some big premium uh, and DVMT was just going to sort of linger out there. The reality was, I mean, there's no way that Dell could have purchased VMware. He didn't have the cash to do it. The DVMT structure really restricted him in terms of what he could do with VMware's cash position. He effectively has to ring fence any cash within the DVMT structure. So, I mean, there was nothing that was, there was no reason for him to go out and leave DVMT out there and buy VMware. Um, But look, when half the street is short, when VMware at the time, I think was one of the most notional wise, uh, the most shorted or the second most shorted security on the street. Um, So when the most shorted security on the street has a Wall Street Journal headline that it might get taken out, then bad things happen quickly. Yeah. I mean, I know someone who, I mean, they didn't go under that day, but it, it came close. I mean, that they were so involved in that spread um, that it blew out so bad um, at one point around 2 o'clock or whatever it was. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, that, that could send a fund out. Yeah. I mean, look, we were getting inundated with orders. Everyone's the same way. Uh, we, like I said, we're familiar with the trade we have the trade on ourselves and you're just trying to simultaneously um you know provide liquidity to your clients try to interpret what's going on and you know risk manage your book as effectively as you can so we talked a little bit about um disney fox we talked a little bit about altaba we did uh dell um but let's talk, you know, those are fairly safe names. So a, a fairly unsafe name is this ACORN, A-K-R-X. Uh, currently, a uh, court case has concluded. We're probably going to hear something back early August. Uh, maybe end of August, early SEP, I think, is what the judge really? is guiding to. I had heard three weeks after the trial. So originally, I think people are thinking the decision would come pretty quickly. Uh, but there's actually the judge put out a schedule 
and uh, he has some post-trial hearing August 23rd that it seems like a decision's not going to come during. So it likely occurs, I would guess, you know, within a, a week or two of that. Okay, so um, a couple of things. What's the appetite for a trade like this? I mean, this stock is 17. It's either going to be 7 or 32. Yeah. So how many people actually want to play in this? Uh, if Acorn loses this case, you could put a $7 valuation on it or you could put a much lower valuation. I mean, they lose this case and FDA launches an investigation. I mean, I don't know who's going to come in to try to own this thing. Um, so this was like uh, a Lear. We were trading a Lear a few years ago where it was like, eh, like whatever your notional is, that's what you should be prepared to lose. Uh, so because of that, what we're seeing is a lot of people put on defined risk reward trades. So they're either just buying puts so that they know what their downside is or buying call spreads. Yeah. So give me an example, like um, how, give me an example of a spread in, in a, you know, are they buying September's? Um, how are they specifically putting this on? What are, what are people doing? Yeah. So some people are buying uh, December 10 strike puts. Um, December or sep- why not buy September? Yeah. So there's this, well, one, I mean, there's some chance that SEP doesn't catch the decision. Okay. Um, but two, I think it's, I mean, look, Fresenius, the CEO has been kind of stating publicly that he's going to appeal this thing. And I would think that Acorn would appeal the decision as well. So you could be in this situation where a decision comes out and then you go through some appeals process. Now, December probably still wouldn't catch that, um, but maybe it gives you a little bit of time after um, the decision comes out for some sort of um, recut or settlement or something like that. So then that's the game. The, the really interesting trade would be if Acorn wins mm-hmm. and the deal price is supposed to be 3250 34 yeah. and then Fresenius appeals, where should Acorn trade? Yeah, so I think Fresenius said that this thing should wrap up sometime in 2019. And the fact that they have not agreed to recut this thing, given the case that they laid out, suggests that they're just they're just going to go all the way to the finish line on this thing. Do you think it's out of just embarrassment? And they have nothing to lose because what they're buying might be worthless anyway. Yeah, I think I think what's happened, I think partially it's embarrassment. Partially it's the quarter after they agreed to this deal, mm-hmm. this thing just like totally went sideways on them. Um, and I do think maybe some of this FDA stuff or something was upsetting to them. Um, but look, you pay $5 billion for a company that you think is worth the billion dollars and that's a decent incentive to to really dig dig your heels in. Yeah, exactly. Did you guys have someone in the courtroom? Uh, we did not No, Uh, but we were talking to people. Uh, that were in the courtroom uh, pretty regularly. And overall sentiment uh, about how the trial went, do people think, from what I heard, was that people thought that it leaned more towards Fresenius? So, yeah, so the interpretations that we've gotten is that uh, the Fresenius lawyers were better than the Acorn Mm -hmm. lawyers, uh, but a lot of the evidence that came out during the trial made it um, a pretty high bar for the judge to rule for Fresenius. So it came out during the trial that 
uh, maybe Fresenius didn't quite do the level of due diligence that they should have, that they actually received some warning signs um, in the due diligence that they didn't pay attention to. Right. Essentially, the crux of Acorn's defense is, yeah, we are a fraud, but you knew we were a fraud and you bought us anyway. Yeah. Fraud's a strong word. Fraud's a strong word, but you knew our <laughs> issues. How about this? You knew our issues before you bought us and nothing, we didn't hide any of those issues. Yeah. And you bought us anyway. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, for Resenius has had the exact same issues, mm. the exact same SDA issues that Acorns had. Um, Acorn, uh, Fresenius came out after the Acorn earnings numbers and defended the stock. There was a, a document that Fresenius had from April that said that Fresen- they had fair value of Fresenius stock above the deal price. So they're not going to be able to get out on an MAE. It doesn't seem like. And yeah, this FDA stuff, it just seems like it's almost due course for this type of company. Fresenius had these issues. They should have known what to look for. Um, and it sounds like the the fixes for these types of things are basically insignificant in the context of the size of the deal. It seems like it's really it's going to be really hard to game where this trades, even if there's an outcome. Yeah, that's a problem. The judge rules for them. Fresenius says they're going to appeal. No, like you're not buying stock thirty dollars. A name that I feel like it goes away, but I think it's going to come back soon is CBS Viacom. And I feel like the binary event there is going to be if Les Moonves keeps his job because he seems to be the impediment to this. So if you got a headline that said either he was leaving or that he was fired, what do you think would happen? Well, I think maybe part of what's going on with this deal is that after this bidding war for Fox... I think they're just sort of trying to sit down and figure out what's the best way to to make the most money off of these assets. And is it to combine them and then sell them later off down the road? Is it right. maybe to sell them off in pieces? So are people that you speak to, are more people long? Are there people who are just straight up long CBS? Are there people that have the spread on? Are there people like how are people playing? So the event slash ARB community that I talked to has not been focused on this name. Um, so, you know, for a while, the popular trade was kind of short Viacom, even though there was a deal spread, just right. because if the deal didn't go through, then you want to be short Viacom. And if the deal did go through, then CBS was going to go down so much that your Viacom short wouldn't really hurt you. Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, there's been so much other stuff going on in the deal world that you know, I'm not as up to speed on short interest numbers. And um, it's definitely not been like if you're ranking popularity of situations, I probably haven't had one conversation on this in three months. Right. But you know how it goes and then it'll come back and it's all it's all anyone will talk about for a little bit. Um, all right. Well, I end every uh, podcast by asking, uh, uh, playing a game called Five Questions, where I ask my guests five questions about what they do. And all right. all right. So here we go. Question one: What event in your career was the biggest shock and caught people the most flat-footed? I mean, I think it's got to be this Time Warner, the decision to litigate Time Warner. I know it's recent. I probably have some recency bias there, but I mean, back in November when this thing happened, it was everyone thought that this thing was was closing within a month Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden for 
Delraheem to come in and then just seemingly out of left field with very little case law supporting him uh, coming in trying to litigate this deal. Uh, you, know, you saw Randall Stevenson's reaction. You saw Stock's reaction. Um, that was probably the the most surprising. Uh, and, yeah, that also also, also painful. Um, okay, this is a personal question. So you've worked at Lehman Brothers and you've worked at Barclays and now you work at Nomura. Yeah. So culturally, what would you say is the biggest difference between working at a Japanese bank versus working at an American bank? Um, well, I was at Lehman for a cup of coffee um, and Barclays is a, a UK bank. Okay, so let's say between a UK bank. The regular regulatory uh, requirements of a UK bank, I think, are, are materially higher than Japanese banks. So that kind of plays itself out, I think, a little bit in the culture, um, just in terms of, um, you know, desire to sort of uh, do new businesses or new trades, uh, risk appetite. Question three, what call did you make in your career that would you that you would say got the most pushback? Um, so we're not making calls, we're not analysts, but we, we do put out some commentary. Um, so. When Acorn uh, first, when they first reported their numbers and the stock kind of uh, cratered a little bit, uh, we were basically saying that we weren't touching the stock. We, wouldn't, we weren't saying that we wanted to, to sell short, uh, but we were, just, we were just coming off the Allaire situation. The, obviously, the numbers are big here, and the mess was so thorough, uh, and the Acorn CEO is, has such a checkered background um, that we were sort of saying, if Fresenius wants to get out of this deal, they can probably find something eventually to get out of this deal. Um, and the contract is so airtight that there's a lot of ARBs that were coming in and supporting it. Um, so we did get a lot of pushback. And look, we were wrong for a long time. Like the stock rallied right back. The deal spread got to extremely tight levels. Um, and then obviously all this stuff blew up. Um, but that was definitely one where you know, people were just did didn't you know agree with the viewpoint that we had on that one. Favorite Wall Street movie: Wolf of Wall Street, Boiler Room, Trading Places, The Big Short, or the original Wall Street. So I have four of the five are just permanently on my iPhone at all times, and I just sort of cycle through them when I get on flights. Um, oh man, this is a really hard one. If I had to rank, I'd say it's got to be Boiler Room one. Wall Street 2, maybe Wolf and Trading Places, are those are tough to rank. And then I put the big, I liked the big short, but for me, it just never kind of, it didn't get the play that the other ones. Are. Right, really? I put the big short higher um, in Boiler Room, which was more cultural, I feel like. Yeah. Than like nuts and bolts trading, but that, yeah. I like the big short a lot. And okay, last question. I'm going to just give you four situations. Um, Let's try to, I'm going to ask you for your prediction in a percentage terms of what, if you think they get through. Okay. okay? First one, um, Disney Fox. This one feels like 99% to me. 99. Okay. CVS Aetna. Uh, so I also feel pretty good about this one. Um, 85 or 90, I'd say. Um, I never asked you for a odds on Acorn winning. Hmm. 75%. Really? And lastly, Sprint T-Mobile. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> a 
can I be like 10% at 80% on that one, depending on uh, the political dynamics? Uh, you know, that one definitely feels like it shouldn't go through, but I, I'm not dismissing the political kind of uh, influences here. So I'm going to put that one like 50-50 and just kind of, kind of punt, give the lawyer answer. Jason, thanks so much for coming on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. My thanks again to Jason Varano at Nomura Securities. Again, if you're interested in becoming a client of Jason's or you just want to reach out with any further questions, you can reach him at jason.varano, that's V-A-R-A-N-O, at nomura.com. Again, that's jason.varano at nomura.com if you're interested in becoming a client or you have any further questions. That is it for According to Sources for the week of July 29th, 2018. Again, I'm Michael Samuels, your host from Broom Street Capital, and I will see you next week. Disclaimer, the opinions expressed today in this podcast are the opinions of Michael Samuels, according to sources, and Broom Street Capital. These entities will not be liable for any losses incurred as a result of the opinions expressed or investments taken based on this podcast. Summer is here. The sun is out, and so are you. When you go, take along a clever little app called Audible so you can listen to the stories you love while doing the things you love. Outside, a walk, a run, the pool, or the beach, all better with Audible. For just $14.95 a month, you get a credit good for any audiobook from the world's largest selection. If you don't like it, exchange it anytime. So get outdoors with Audible. Start a 30-day trial, and your first audiobook is free at audible.com.